This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hello and welcome to Money and Markets. I'm Tom Selby from AJ Bell and for this week's podcast we've got a special extended interview with former pensions minister and now baroness in the House of Lords, Ros Altman. Now, Ros is probably best known as a pensions and retirement campaigner and has fought battles with various governments over the compensation provided to members of failed pension schemes, the equitable life scandal and annuities reform. However, recently, Ros has turned her focus to long-term care reform in the UK, obviously something that's been very topical recently, and that's the focus of our interview today. We discuss how long-term care funding works at the moment, the impact of coronavirus, and why governments have consistently dodged reforming the UK's system. So sit back and enjoy the interview. So, Ros, thank you very much for joining me um, today. We're we're here to talk about the long-term care system and specifically some of the problems in the long-term care system and some of the reforms that I know that you've been pushing for for quite a long time. But first of all, it's it's, it's quite tricky, isn't it, long-term care? So it's quite complicated in the UK. So can you, can you just briefly explain what people are entitled to um, from their local authority at the moment in terms of having their long-term care paid for? Okay. Uh, well, the, the first thing to say is that our system of social care is broken. I would suggest that nobody should expect the state automatically to pay to help them if they have a health and care need in later life that doesn't qualify for the free NHS care that would be available. So, for example, if you get cancer, then you don't have to pay for anything. You, you get treated on the NHS. But if you get dementia, that's not classed as health care, that's classed as social care. And you have to pay everything, all the costs, yourself, until you've got pretty much no money left and until you've used up the value of your home, unless you've got a partner still living in it. So, so we have a two-tier system where if you get ill in the right way as you get older, you don't need to worry about paying for care because it's taken care of, as it were, by other taxpayers Mm. via the NHS. But if you get ill in the wrong way, then you could have to pay tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of pounds of the wealth that you have built up and the savings that you've built up over your lifetime to to look after yourself because the council will only pay for your care when you have nothing left apart from around £23,000. And even then, they only pay part of it. It's only when you have less than about £14,000 left that you will get any help. Now, that's in England. 
Scotland has a different system. Wales has a slightly different system, and so does Northern Ireland. But obviously the vast majority of people in the UK actually live in England and are subject to these rules. Yeah, and it's, 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 I think that's a really important point, Ross. So I, I've, I've had some personal personal experience with the um, the long-term care system and with the issue of dementia that you mentioned as well. So my, my granddad, God rest his soul, had dementia for um, the seven years. Oh, no, it's okay. It's fine. And then he... Um, and he he had to go into a care home eventually, and I think um, I think one of the one of the issues is that people a lot of people and, and I'll and I'll admit I'm someone who's in the industry who thought I thought I understood how things worked. I was still shocked at the costs involved in um, in making sure my granddad was properly cared for because towards the end he needed essentially round the clock. Yeah. Care um, and I think, as you say, that one of the issues here is particularly with something like dementia that there's no because as, because it isn't classed in the same way as other types of healthcare. I think people are unaware that it's on them to provide the care that they that they're going to need. Like, as, you, as you say, taking out the 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 means testing threshold, which is pretty pretty low at the moment. Well, it's it's the meanest of all the means tests in this mm, country, yeah. the one for social care, pretty much. I mean, the, the consequences of needing to pay for your own round-the-clock care or care in a care home, which is of a quality and perhaps in a location that you want it to be, can mean having to pay between fifty and a hundred thousand pounds a year for the care. Now, on average, people in a care home tend to live two and a half to three years. That's on average. But some people can live for many more years than that. Others might only live a shorter time. But if they are uh, qualifying for NHS care, all that cost is taken care of for them. However, if you are unlucky enough to have a need, which I would class as a health need, because you're not well enough to look after yourself, and a care need, which doesn't get classed as health care in our strange system, which has this artificial divide, which doesn't seem to make any sense to most people, then what we've also now got in our system is a double penalty for those who pay privately. Because councils, although they are supposed to pay for the care of those people who've used up all their savings or never had any in the first place, they don't pay the full amount. They have a system where they barter with health care providers, sorry, with social care companies. So they will tell care homes they're only willing to pay, let's say, £350 a week for those people who they place in that care home. But the actual cost of looking after the people in that home may well be 500 or 600 pounds a week. And what happens is 
because the local authority only pays 350 mm-hmm. the care home then instead of charging the five or six hundred pounds that they would normally need to charge charge the people paying privately 650 or 700 pounds a week so not only are their life savings going towards their own care there's also this astonishing cross subsidy whereby the person who is paying for themselves in a care home is paying for their own care and paying for the care of the person who might be in the room next door to them who is funded by the council but the council doesn't pay enough the system is is the system is in my view impossible to justify socially inequitable penalizes unfairly twice the people who've got some money set aside which they put aside for the rest of their life and their life savings can be whittled away by a social care charge that they wouldn't even have to pay if they had got ill in a different way which would qualify them for free care under the NHS and there is also of course the situation where a lot of uh, people are claiming NHS care and the NHS initially says we don't believe you're entitled actually they are entitled but unless they appeal and sometimes appeal many times they still don't get any help from the NHS so we, we, we've got a broken system and unfortunately it's the most vulnerable elderly people and their families who are paying the costs of this broken system. All of the, the, uh, the cost itself, which normally you'd expect to be shared across society, is falling on the shoulders of those frail, vulnerable people who actually need the care. So we have we have a we have a broken system, as as you say, and I know there've been various attempts over the years. Certainly, since I've been in the industry since two thousand nine, two thousand ten, to um, to introduce reforms to the system, but that that's never really happened, has it? So I, mean, I guess my question is why why hasn't that happened, and what what could be done now to improve a system that, uh, as you as you say, is is letting down so many elderly, vulnerable, and potentially frail people? Part of the reason why this has not been solved before by successive governments. This isn't just uh, Tory or Labour or Lib Dem. This is all of them. Is because the magnitude of the shortfall in funding and the inadequacy of the arrangements of the system are so enormous that the implications of getting to grips with it and actually letting people know just how bad the system is and how much money it's going to take and how much reorganisation it's going to take to actually make it work more fairly 
are so frightening and there isn't much political mileage in sorting this out because most people don't even know how bad the system is. And once they find out because one of their loved ones or they themselves get ill, they tend to be so busy trying to sort out and deal with the system that the political pressure hasn't been there. And it's just not a sexy subject, unfortunately, for politicians to talk about looking after frail elderly people in care homes. They all run away from it as fast as they can, unfortunately, because it tends to be the healthier people who are the older voters. And because for so many decades, we have failed to prepare for this coming care explosion that we haven't even hit properly yet. And what you've seen is each element of the system tries to wait for someone else to sort out changes that are needed. And the reality is that this spans across an enormous number of government departments and non-departmental bodies. So local authorities are involved. The NHS is involved. The uh, housing department, to some extent, is involved. The CQC, the NHS regulators, all of these areas and the Home Office to some extent, and of course, overridingly, the Treasury, are all trying to pass the buck, maybe. And we have had reviews, we've had green papers, we've had white papers, we even had legislation, which followed on from the Dilnot review, which actually implemented in law the framework for some reform, but the government then changed its mind a couple of years later and decided not to introduce the regulations that are needed to enact the law, to make the law operational in practice. And the the, the, the deal not review just for just for anyone who's not aware that was a that was a review that was completed was it back in two thousand eleven two thousand and twelve which suggested that um, a cap on care costs should be introduced in the UK I believe was it around seventy thousand pounds and Andrew Dillnot originally suggested with and the aim the aim of that cap was to try to encourage the insurance industry to to come in and offer products which people will want to buy which of course is one of the I guess one of the issues with the the market away from the the, the situation with the system and the providers one of the issues with the the market and for people who might want to insure against the the costs of um, the cost of going into long-term care is, is there, there are a huge number of products out there and I think from from providers point of view certainly when I've spoken to them in the past one of the issues is that um, people simply don't want to buy an insurance product for something which is well a so far into the into the distance and b most people think simply won't happen to them that's partly it I mean the the, the Dillnot review was reported in 2012 it recommended that 
a cap on care costs of between 20 and 50,000 pounds. Mm. But of course, that was only a cap on the costs of the care, not the accommodation in a care. Yes. Yeah, and that's an important distinction, isn't it? So it, the, the, the total cost would have been a lot higher, even if his level of cap had been accepted. In the end, the government chose a £75,000 cap. And that would have been probably around 150000 when you start taking into account the accommodation costs. Uh, but another most important part of the Dilnot reforms was to increase the means testing threshold to £100,000, which would have allowed many people in different parts of the country to at least protect the value of their home. You know, not everybody lives in London where homes cost way over 100000 But even that element hasn't been introduced. So on top of the fact that the cap wasn't there, you've also had the insurance industry, which concluded, and I think that was always inevitable, that there isn't really a product you can safely sell to people, even to insure themselves up to the cap. Because let's say the cap's 75,000, and if you want to insure all the costs, it might be 100, 150,000. With a probability of somebody needing care in later life, around one in four, which could actually be one in two in any couple. And it's more women than men who end up needing care because typically they live longer and they've got no partner left to even try and look after them. Then the cost of insuring yourself up to the cap, and most people would not be expected to reach the cap, would be tens of thousands of pounds. And many people would have thought, well, why would I spend tens of thousands of pounds just in case I'm one of the worst affected? I'll take my chances. And the insurance industry could be accused of mis-selling if they tried to entice people to buying this cap when the vast majority of people wouldn't be expected to ever need to reach the cap. So it is a really difficult insurance, private insurance proposition. And I have always believed, and I still believe, that the solution has to be national insurance. You know, spread the risk and the cost across the whole of society not just focus it on a smaller group because the costs are so enormous. And we, we, we insure against other aspects of later life expense in terms of pensions. I mean, you and I have talked about the pensions crisis for many, many years. And of course, there is concern that most people don't seem to have enough money in their pensions for the kind of lifestyle they might want in retirement. But we're talking a couple of trillion pounds set aside for pensions. There's 
zero for social care. Even though with life expectancy having increased so much and the numbers of people needing care significantly expected to increase, we've still not made any provision anywhere in the system properly to build up funding for the care needs we know people are going to experience in retirement. Your pension doesn't typically take account of the rising cost of care need at the end of life. So if you buy an annuity, it's fixed for life. Many, many annuities don't even pay uh, inflation linking. So the older you get, the less it's worth. And yet the older you get, the more risk there is that you're actually going to need a sudden huge extra amount of money to live on if you need care. The state pension makes no allowance for care and there's no state provision for care. Local authorities have no budget for the care needs of their populations in the next five to ten years. They, all of it, all of the social care costs, which tend to come as a surprise, you know, you don't usually get huge amounts of warning if someone has a stroke or, or something like that or, or suddenly realise they can't live on their own with dementia. These things often happen very quickly. And if you haven't got money earmarked for it anywhere, then everybody is scrabbling around at the point of need to try to find where it can come from. And those are the only products really, or that's the predominant product that is available, which is at the point of need, you can buy an annuity with a lump sum of money that will pay your care costs. At the point of need, you could take out an equity release policy to release some money slowly from your property rather than having to sell it immediately. But they are typically quite expensive and there's no savings product like there is for pensions that you specifically can build up that says, well, this is the money I am saving for my, say, 80s in case I need care. So it all so would, comes would, as a shock. Yeah. Is, is, that, is that what you, you'd like to see then? Would you like to see, because we've seen, of course, automatic enrollment, enrollment, and that's something we talked about on the podcast yeah. a few times. Um, so we've seen, seen automatic enrollment introduced um, for workplace pensions to try and build up savings levels in um, uh, among, among private individuals. But would you like to see something similar introduced to get to help people save for their long-term care needs but and then then i guess i guess the difficulty there is that it's not it's not obvious what what product or where where how that would help them in the in the the case where they have catastrophic care costs so i can't imagine any way of addressing this well without an element of spreading the costs across the whole of society. And part of the problem with those catastrophic care costs is that you're on your own to meet all of it. There's no insurance arrangement across the nation to 
help people in advance in case the worst happens. If you know, if you buy a house, you can insure against your house burning down. The probability of your house burning down is not great, but you wouldn't want it to happen to you. The probability of perhaps having catastrophic care costs may be slightly higher than your house burning down, but nevertheless, you can't prepare for it. Whereas across a, a nation of millions of people, money could be building up. In addition, of course, there is this disconnect between funding in retirement via pension and funding for social care. Because with the state pension, which comes from the national insurance system and is part of the welfare state, there is a basic state pension that you pay contributions for throughout your working life. And when you reach the required age and you've made enough contributions, then you will be entitled to a basic minimum amount of state pension. But on top of that, taxpayers have introduced enormously generous incentives to help people build up more pension or a private pension. We spend more than £40 billion a year now on incentives for pension saving. There is no incentive whatsoever for anybody to build up a private care fund. And if there were, that would at least start the conversation and start the ball rolling. Because my favoured solution would be to model the care system a bit on the state pension system, where you get free basic care at the point of need, so that you end up getting rid of this arbitrary, unfair, inequitable distinction between health care and social care, when both are about health and both are about care, but somehow one is sacrosanct and free and the other is the poor relation, and you've just got to pay huge sums. So the free basic care, like the state pension, probably wouldn't be what everybody would aspire to. And they might well want to have the option, if you like, the freedom and choice to have care starting earlier than the state might provide, or a better quality of care, or more care, or specifically in a care home of their choice, rather than where the government sends them. And if you want that, you're going to need some extra money. And do, do you think is there is there any is there any hope for radical reform of that nature? I mean, clearly we've seen um, seen the government take some quite serious criticism over over care homes during during coronavirus, and that's clearly been one of the awful parts 
of um, of this whole this whole crisis. Is do you get any any sense that there's any appetite to try to perhaps address um, address yeah. the care system a little more than maybe there was before coronavirus because of some of the negativity that the government's seen ar- around well, that sector? I mean, any inquiry into what's been going on would, in my view, inevitably conclude that the problems experienced in care homes, which cost many, many lives, unfortunately, and caused enormous distress to people in care and their families, is a direct result of this artificial divide between health and self-care. And without better integration between the two and a system of national awareness of what's happening in the care sector, which there hasn't been so far, but is starting, you just won't be able to sort this out. So I I think what this has highlighted is the damage being done to the most vulnerable people in society unintentionally as a result of a system that has failed and is broken. So if we can help politicians understand just how dangerous this current system is and how unpopular they will be if they don't sort it, then we will have, I think, a chance of proper radical reform. Having said that, there was already an appetite and a recognition that this needed to be done. Uh, On the steps of Downing Street over a year ago, it was what the Prime Minister promised. He said, we have a plan, it's ready to go, and we'll be unveiling it soon. Unfortunately, we're still waiting. Um, First Brexit maybe got in the way, and now the pandemic maybe has got in the way. But actually, both of those things have made the crisis worse. Um, And until politicians grasp the nettle rather than continually kicking the can down the road, if you'll forgive me, the various (laughs) allegories, Um, we're not going to get anywhere. But from my perspective, one of the easiest things to do, surely, would be to incentivize baby boomers in particular, who are going to be the first ones who are going to be forming a big wave of people needing care and no money set aside. To, to put aside some money in case they need care. Now, as an example, the over 60s have more than £300 billion in ISAs. And that was in 2018. Well, that was figures given in 2018. Over 8 million over 60s have an average of around £40,000 in their ISA. Many have far more. They haven't earmarked that for anything. Nothing. So rather than leaving that money 
ready to be spent because it is instantly accessible. It just seems to make so much sense to me for the government to say, well, if you badge that ISA as a care ISA and you don't spend it unless and until you need care and then you never need to spend it, you can pass that money on free of inheritance tax. That would not require new money to be saved, but of course we want to encourage that as well. And it would mean that there would at least be the start of some pre-funding of the care needs that we know are coming. I would also argue that there are many people with money in their private pensions Obviously not a defined benefit pension that you're already receiving because that won't just jump up and increase if you happen to need care. But if you've got a defined contribution pension pot with, you know, many baby boomers having reasonable amounts of money in there, you're talking at least tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of pounds in their pension fund, then introducing a new incentive that would help them understand why they might not want to spend it, even if it's there and available, could again form the basis of some private money for families to know that there is a sum set aside in case the worst happens. With a pension, it will already pass on free of inheritance tax. But if you cash in the pension to pay for care, you, unless the money goes directly to a care home, will be taxed on it. So why not allow people to withdraw money tax-free for, let's say, home care? You don't want to go into a care home, but you need care at home. That, again, costs huge sums that your normal pension may not cover. But the point of these incentives isn't just to make sure money is set aside, but of course that is important. What is perhaps even more important by introducing incentives of this kind is to signal to people that they actually need to think about where the money is going to come from in advance and make some provision, and the government is rewarding you for doing so, if you like just like the principle of pensions. You know, if Beveridge was designing our welfare state now rather than in the 1940s, he would have clearly seen that a, a minimum state pension is not going to be enough for most people to have a decent later life. In his day, though, the idea of all these millions of people living well into their 80s or even 90s with illnesses that they can live with, although they need help for their daily life rather than a dying of, which they would have done in those days, was unthinkable. And the idea that you didn't automatically would normally have family looking after you if you needed it, you know, 
children, grandchildren would look after grandma, grandpa, great grandma, great grandpa. They might live together, live round the corner, down the road, whatever. Life was very different then. So the importance of people being looked after who would otherwise be on their own or who could have a good life in a care home or with home care but needed money to pay for it didn't occur to beverage as a kind of national issue. But now it would automatically be. And if only national insurance had built some element of uh, money that you could rely on in later life if you needed care, like they did for health. You know, they, the NHS was part of the beverage welfare state. Is that, I mean, is that, is that, what, is that what we need yes. now, a, a 21st century we beverage We need report? a 21st century beverage to redesign the welfare state to make sure that it offers social equity and national pooling of risk like it does for unemployment insurance like it does for sickness benefits like it does for pension you take money in from everybody not everybody is going to ever claim on unemployment benefit but it is there if you need it rather than you as the unemployed person suddenly finding you've got no income coming in, you've lost your job, and what are you going to live on? So, you know, I, I think this principle that everybody should pay something towards care, regardless of whether they end up needing it, is a very important element of, of the solution here. Whether it's built into national insurance now or is a separate national insurance, you know, social care insurance that is run nationally or run by your local authority or whoever it's run by, it collects money from everybody throughout their lifetime. Obviously not if you're unemployed and you don't have any income, but you know, that there is a, a requirement for you to pay into a system that then says, if you do need care, there is some basic care, but it also incentivizes you to have some extra money on top of that, because what the state can provide is maybe not as much as you would want. And when you come to that point, you might want to have the option and the choice and the freedom to have more. Or, or different care to suit your own needs and wants. Oh, Ros, I'm I'm very glad that you are in the House of Lords to hold the government's feet to the fire on these issues. Uh, I should Baroness Ros Altman. Sorry, oh, I always Ros I always forget fine. about the Baroness. Ros is fine. Okay, good. Um, I think that as as you've said and you've said you've said it all there. Really, I think that this uh, over. Over the last um, decade, indeed over multiple decades, not enough has been done to address what has been a, a, a kind of slow motion car crash in the in the long term care sector. And we've seen awful um, headlines and awful yeah. stories um, as a result of coronavirus. And I know that 
um, older people and indeed younger people couldn't have a stronger advocate in the House of Lords to make sure that Boris Johnson sticks to his promises. Well, to, um, there are lots to, of us in the Lords trying to do that. Yeah. So thank you very much. Um, and uh, yeah, thank you very thank much. You. Ross. Pleasure Take care. to talk to you, Tom. That's it for this week's podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it. Thanks very much to Ros Altman for being so generous with her time. And thanks most importantly to you for listening. If you have enjoyed this week's podcast and want to leave a positive review, we'd very much appreciate that. And um, please send any thoughts or ideas or feedback you have to podcast at ajbell.co.uk. Thanks very much for listening and I'll see you again next week. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor.